Welcome to the Wealth Inequality Initiative podcast, shedding light on wealth inequality through exceptional personalities from around the world. Today, Christoph Schmocker, CEO of the Julius Baer Foundation, meets Danny Sri Skandaraja. The CEO of Oxfam Great Britain reflects on the role of the rich in fighting wealth inequality and what strategic philanthropy is about. Hello, everybody. I'm Christoph Schmocker, CEO of the Julius Baer Foundation, and I'm happy to welcome Danny Sri Skandaraja as my guest in our Wealth Inequality Initiative podcast series. Danny is the CEO of Oxfam United Kingdom, one of the 21 affiliates to the non-governmental organization Oxfam International. Oxfam was funded in 1942 to fight poverty and injustice and is a leading non-profit organization of today. Danny, a warm welcome. We are sitting in London today. I've been really looking forward to this opportunity to meet you here. Thank you for taking the time for this exchange. And the British gods are with us. <laughs> Beautiful weather outside, isn't it? It's very rare, but lovely. <laughs> yeah. Danny, how are you and when did you visit Switzerland for the last time. Ah, I'm very well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, because of COVID, I haven't been going to Switzerland as nearly as regularly as I used to. I think I would go to Switzerland for one reason or another, at least two, three times a year. The last time I was there for was for in Geneva for something called the Global Refugee Forum, mm -hmm. which was a fascinating meeting. The first time the United Nations in Geneva hosted uh, an official UN conference on, on Geneva, really important moment. And and of course, it was uh, Switzerland had a, a very important role in, in, in hosting that. Okay. Oxfam has been historically highlighting systemic inequalities and the shortfall of the current economic system, pointing at the rich as the ones to blame. Danny, isn't it more complex than this? Does the blaming approach bring solutions to reduce the gap between the disadvantaged and the wealthy? Of course, it's uh, it is complex, and I suppose the, you know what you might call the blaming approach um, in in Oxfam is is example for example when we published uh, data that looked at uh, extreme wealth inequality. You know, every Davos for about the last ten years, we've been publishing our estimate of the of, of global wealth inequality and particularly this sort of high statistic that's often highlighted that you know that a very very small number of the world's billionaires all men uh, own more wealth than uh, half of the world's population put together and people have often asked you know why why is oxfam naming and shaming you know <clears throat> successful people who are doing wonderful things in this way and we're doing it because we think that extreme inequality is not inevitable. It's not an inevitable outcome of, uh, of modern capitalism. And we're doing it to call out the fact that we are seeing eye-watering levels of inequality in recent years. And the system is risks falling apart unless we bring that into check. And, and so the sort of data and work and research that we do is to raise public and, and stakeholder consciousness about the importance of inequality. And, you know, for me, there are, there are lots of statistics, but the one that scares me the most in some ways is that if the world were a country, it would be the most unequal country in the world. 
And there's something about the way that global capitalism has worked that has achieved wonderful things, you know, trade in goods and services, the flows of capital, the flows of data information are wonderfully liberal. And I think the world is a better place because we have become so integrated. But the corollary, that the, the implication of this globalization has that it, it's deepened wealth inequality. So, you know, at a time when we've had extreme accumulation by a few, we've also have, we live in a world where, you know, hundreds of millions of people are still going to bed in extreme hunger, who are close to famine. And that's unjust and unfair. And I hope uh, something that we can do, do something about, which is the point of our research at the, ultimately. I worked a few years for a university from South Africa, and the biggest uh, fear I heard in um, thoughts from investors or future donors was, does that research really be applied, used? What's the experience with you? Did your research uh, reports who came out motivated uh, Bill Gates or Bezos or uh, whoever to, to do something? Or did you have any reactions which made you kind of positive to say, okay, we have to make in two years the research report again because this guy responded? No, I, I think over the last few years, um, our, our research has had a huge impact, including with the individuals we speak. As it happens, I, I sat next to Bill Gates when he was in London recently uh, for lunch, and we talked about the report, and we talked about how um, people like him who've, you know, who've committed to philanthropy and, and, and the giving pledge um, are, I think, um, motivated by uh, this idea of doing something about a system from which they have benefited from, but that the vast majority of people are not benefiting from. And, you know, that's why, uh, you know, things like the Giving Pledge, where many of the world's richest uh, people have pledged to give away their, the vast majority of their wealth during their lifetimes, or or the work of something called Patriotic Millionaires, a, a group of very rich millionaires and billionaires who are actively calling for higher rates of taxation, because they said they've been lucky. And they've made a lot of money, but it's not just. And what would be more just and more fair is to create fairer levels of taxation that uh, allows uh, the state the, to, to have the resources to deliver public services. And so, you know, conversations like the one with Bill Gates or, or initiatives like Patriotic Millionaires, I, I hope our work has helped push some of that momentum along. Uh, I'm happy to hear that because that's a little bit the approach the Julius Baer Foundation tries to do. So we are a foundation within a Swiss private bank. Uh, I told you that uh, the, the, the bank was surprised when I proposed we could do wealth inequality as a, a strategic focus. But that's also what I see. I meet uh, one, two, three clients of the bank a week. And they are aware that the gap increases. They feel uncomfortable to not do something. Some, most of them donate. But it's about what else could they do. Yeah. And the, the Julius Baer Foundation tries to propose concrete projects in a very concrete microcosmos. It can be a, a wine farm. It can be... Um, a city, it can be an industry where 
the systemic processes could be changed because a wealthy player and disadvantaged player sit together and develop new ideas. Yeah. Is Oxfam having these kind of programs or, or did you have any thoughts about these kind of programs? Look, I think the point you made about um, the sort of role and responsibility of philanthropists is really important. You know, I've been a consumer of philanthropy for almost all of my career. I worked for NGOs that receive grants or donations or um, from philanthropy, and and my experience is thoughtful, strategic, risk-taking philanthropy is precious. Because this is the capital that's so precious. You know, it's unlike what the state often spends or when, you know, investors who want a return can do. But when philanthropists take on an issue, they, you know, when they're brave, uh, they can make a huge amount of difference. You know, take on an unpopular uh, uh, an issue, take on social norms that are very difficult in a society. Or, as you're trying to do, challenge wealth inequality, the sort of very system I suspect many of your clients and stakeholders have, have benefited and done well from uh, to go and think about what more, what more they can do. And in fact, you know, when I, in, in my last role at, at Civicus, which is a global civil society alliance, we created an award for brave philanthropy to name and fame philanthropists who were doing things differently. And I think anyone, including foundations like you, who, who can push that practice, improve that practice, I think, is doing a, a really important job. From, from where Oxfam sits, I think that is the, um, another part of this story, which is we can do something about uh, inequality. And, and, and we are constantly looking through our network. You know, we, Oxfam has a presence in 80-odd in countries around the world. We're constantly looking for interventions, projects, examples where we can test and learn wh what works. So a, a good example is valuing women's work is a key priority for us. Looking at paid and unpaid work that women do in society and find ways of, of shifting the dial on how societies or economies treat women. And, you know, that, for us, that's been about testing and learning new experience, uh, approaches. You know, in some places, we're working with digital platforms, gig economy platforms, to make sure that, say, domestic workers or cleaners who are in, in many developing countries are now using apps to find work, that we're using those apps to make sure they know their human rights, their labor rights, that they're, they're kept safer because people know where they are. I think that, that the next frontier um, for those who are, who are, of us who are interested in these issues is to find those sort of interventions that will have sort of supersized impacts uh, down the line. And um, I think that's, that's really important. I have to admit that the biggest challenge for us convincing wealthy people is, is not the want, it's the availability, it's the sit together with disadvantaged stakeholder groups and to continue to, stay, uh, to sit together with these groups. So it's a time issue, it's a change the world, come and see in a township in South Africa or in a favelas in Brazil. So there is a lot of fear and discomfort, and not because they don't want, but they feel it, they won't be accepted. So I was thinking sometimes on my journeys, how could we convince and, and motivate wealthy people to, to take the discomfort away? Yeah. Any ideas on that? Yeah, I, look, I think the next generation of philanthropists are leaning into this discomfort. They, because for me, you know, 
philanthropic institutions that will thrive in the rest of the 21st century will look very different to those that were created in the 20th century. You know, 20th century philanthropy was often about big institutions that had headquarters in New York or Seattle or somewhere else and made decisions about, you know, where to spend that money very removed from the people and communities that philanthropy was serving. And with that has come a sort of disconnect and a power imbalance that the next generation of philanthropists I see are, are really doing some interesting questioning of that model. And, you know, I'm really excited about models of, say, participatory grant making, where philanthropists recognize that they uh, bring resources and power and access and profile, but they do sit with the communities they, they uh, want to work with and, and, and have a, a, a constructive conversation about what how to intervene, you know, obviously with their resources, but sometimes to other things about using their voice for progressive allyship on the issues that matter by sometimes convening their friends and networks to amplify an issue or get some traction on an issue. And I think, yes, there's some discomfort there, but there is also a huge um, liberation and emancipation, if you will. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I feel that at Oxfam as well. You know, I work for this amazing organization that has been around for almost 80 years. We're one, as you said, we're one of the biggest brands in, in the sort of charitable world. But we also are asking ourselves, what's our value added? How do we get, shift power and how do we make, you know, our practice um, better? And I, I keep going back to a, a phrase that an Aboriginal Australian uh, activist and academic um, uh, used, I think, in the 1970s. And she said, if you are here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you're here to work together because your liberation is bound up with my liberation, let's work together. Hmm. And I think that's the spirit that I hope all of us, whether you're a big NGO like us or a philanthropist, take to this thing, that this we're in this together. And philanthropy at its best is about recreating, nurturing the social bonds that are being strained all around us in the world. And I think that's the most exciting bits of philanthropy that I see around the world. Very interesting. Thanks a lot to share this with us. Let's go somewhere else. <clears throat> How would you build a society for it to be sustainably equal? So you, we have a white paper and we can build it now. How would you do it? It's a fantastic question. I, I think my instinct would be to go to uh, what we mean by the social contract. You know, throughout human history, all of our societies, our communities, whether it's a village or a nation state, have been built on some form of social contract between those who govern and the, gov and the people who govern, those who are rich and those who work. Um, and in some ways, I think, you know, we, we live in a world where the social contract hasn't caught up to the reality of what's happening around us, whether that's globalization and the fact that, you know, we live in a, an incredibly globalized world, but we haven't yet developed the social norms or the social contracts reflect that or, um, or even in a digital transformation. You know, I, I often think to myself, there's a, a sort of false intimacy that's evolving in the in the way that digital transformation is happening. You know, if I, when I think about the way I used to book taxis in my neighborhood, you know, there was a local taxi company that was a few hundred meters from where I lived. And when I wanted a car, I would call, I would know the people, they would be sort of important in our local town and they might invest in things. So they were business people who were successful. Now I can go onto any number of apps and order a driver. 
I now know the driver, I can rate her or him and they can rate me. And it's, you think to yourself, wow, this is amazing. This is a, a, a social contract that's actually very intimate, but it's not. Because the people who are the sort of, who are the capitalists behind this, if you will, the investors, are global, are faceless, are distant, have no interest in my community and no real presence. And of course, there's been a, uh, an undermining in some cases of workers' rights. And so I think to be sustainably equal in the 21st century, we, you know, if there was a blank sheet, we say, look, what do we have? We have a, a highly globalized world, a digital transformation happening all around us, distrust in many, many institutions, um, and so on. And how do we nurture a sense of, uh, of a social, of a new, new social contract for, for, for the 21st century? And again, I think thoughtful, strategic philanthropy can be really important in, in helping, even just having the conversations about what that looks like, because I don't see politicians around us having those sorts of meaningful conversations. They're stuck in the short term, they're stuck in the extractive, they're stuck in the defensive. And I see some corporates willing and interested in these sorts of conversations, but only a few. Mm. And so I think that's, again, another area where thoughtful philanthropy can make a real difference. How do you see the role of a bank like Julius Baer or another private bank in that kind of creating a new, a new way of... In South Africa, there's a nice word called social cohesion. So what's the role of a bank? So I think for me... A bank at its best can help with the sort of race to the top rather than the race to the bottom. I think banks at their worst have been accused of, of sort of just helping move money or make money, you know, by any means necessary, whether it's, you know, tax avoidance or whether it's um, uh, sort of, um, you know, maximizing returns. Whereas I think thoughtful banks, banks that want to create a sort of sustainable economy can help by promoting a race to the top by connecting those who are doing a good job, who are being thoughtful about this with each other, to create a community of practice where everyone is trying to sort of compete with each other as to who's being sort of most responsible, still making money, and that's important, um, but doing it in a more thoughtful, sustainable um, uh, way. And, you know, that's, that's, you know, we need better regulation in many of these. I would also argue we need better and higher uh, taxes, especially around wealth around the world. We need more global action uh, by regulators to create a level playing field. But we also need voluntary action by, by you know, in, in wealthy individuals or philanthropists who can, who can push the agenda. And I think that's where a, a, a private bank who, you know, with, with thoughtful private clients can really add value. And I hope you are doing that at Julius Baer. <laughs> we try. <laughs> uh, did you ever thought, Danny, to invite uh, 10 CEOs of banks and to make a workshop on, on that topic? I'm thinking about how could or who could. It can't be a UN. It can't be a, a politician. Maybe it should be a, a, a Roger Federer type of NGO brand mm. who says, okay, we invite the CEOs of... Julius Baer, Goldman Sachs, and all those for a two-day workshop, not in Davos, but mm. maybe in Arosa. Mm. <laughs> and then we, we talk about that, you know, the credibility of and the role of an Oxfam and two, three other key players. Would you dare to do that? Or I, would that be something which you would en envisage? 
so I at- attended, I think, five World Economic Forum annual meetings in Davos. And, and my dream after that was to think about, you know, I, I, in my head, I called it the World Hope Forum. And I wanted to convene it in, in Southern Africa, in the, in the Southern African Alps in Lesotho. Um, and, and have a, a similar conversation, which brings different stakeholders together, um, but a more ambitious conversation about what does that new system look like? What does the new social contract look like? And, you know, I think if you take something like climate change, it's becoming clearer that we're all on, only on one boat and we better make the best of it. And uh, we all have a role to play in, in, in reducing carbon emissions, in, in supporting mitigation adaptation, in supporting climate justice. And I think, you know, there's no shortage of those sorts of big global issues that, um, again, thoughtful companies and thoughtful philanthropists can use their convening power, their connection power to drive real change. So you didn't answer me the question. Lesotho, make a little Afriski trip <laughs> there. <laughs> For those who don't know, Afriski is the only ski resort in Southern Africa where you really can ski as in Switzerland or Germany. Um, yeah, would you, do you think it would worth it to invite 10, 20 CEOs of big companies, banks, cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, whatever, and to to think about that? Yes, and oh, definitely. What, one condition, though, that the makeup or the constitution of that group is truly reflective of the world's population. You know, I, I am now tired of going to global meetings which are thoroughly unrepresentative of mm. the world. They're dominated by rich countries, big corporations. They're incredibly white and northern. And I don't think we're going to get interesting or sustainable solutions unless we broaden participation. So yes, 10 CEOs, but also 10 tribal elders from indigenous communities, 10 amazing women's rights activists, 10 inspiring digital youth activists, and put them in a room or in an open space under the African sky and let them connect and the magic I think will happen. We should stop here, yeah. <laughs> because this is a good final word. But I have one last question. <clears throat> so we we came across through different ideas. Um, you know, this podcast is a series of uh, people we think they have something to say on wealth inequality. If you would like to invite somebody to a next talk, either you with that person or we would ask this person to talk with, who would you recommend to ask for the next Wealth Inequality podcast? I think Jeff Bezos, you know, one of the world's richest men who's transformed the way that we shop, for example. But in the process, I, I really am worried about the fact that, you know, for example, there was a study recently that says that he paid almost no tax to the US federal government last year, that you know, we calculated that if during the pandemic, uh, Jeff Bezos paid each of his workers, 800,000 or so Amazon workers, a $100,000 bonus, Bezos would still be richer than he was at the start of the pandemic. And so I think someone like him would be fascinating. I'd love to hear what is his view about what, you know, what is he going to do about a system from which he has made eye-watering amounts of wealth. What's, what's he going to do to pay back the society, the workers, the consumers from whom he has um, d- done very well out of?
So you went in your own trap because you took an American North male <laughs> guy for your next talk. So where are those <laughs> other groups? So if I would ask you, uh, and who else? You know, not not, not the Norsen person. It doesn't matter the gender, but any people comes to your mind from the South? Well, uh, any number of leaders of, of cooperatives, for example, or social enterprise where, you know, where, we we think some of this is new, but it's not, huh? So for most of human society, of, of human civilization, we've had formations where you know that have been much better at mutuality. And if you take cooperatives, you know the norm in many societies, in many economies, is to have cooperative-based enterprises, not a sort of sh sh extractive shareholder, short-term type model. And I think I would love to talk to any one of those people about how their model works and mm. what lessons we might all have from, uh, from what they're doing. Thank you very much, Danny, that you spent time with us and enjoyed the day of uh, sunny day here in London and hope to see you again, at least in Lesotho at one of those conferences. I'm booking my, booking my flight as soon as we've confirmed <laughs> <Okay>. the dates. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Wealth Inequality Initiative podcast. What did you think of this episode? Please go to www.wealth-inequality.net to share your thoughts and comments and for more insights into the pressing issue of wealth inequality.